Sound Words, Christian Magazine, Volumes 11-20, republished by Irving Risch, host of Down-to-Earth but Heavenly-Minded Podcast. Practical Reflections from the Life of Abraham. Genesis Chapter 20. In Genesis Chapter 20 and 21, which we are now to consider, we are introduced to a people who, because of their fierce and unrelenting opposition to God's earthly people, figure very prominently in the after-history of the children of Israel, and who, throughout the times of Samson, Eli, Samuel and Saul, hold the chief place among the implacable enemies, whom God uses to scourge his erring people. David defeats and subjugates them, but they rise again in the times of his degenerate successors, still marked with the same relentless, ruthless and insatiable spirit of antagonism. Despite the many unmistakable indications of divine intervention on behalf of his wayward and willful people, the Philistines, for such is their name, were not Canaanites, although sons of Ham. It is not only a matter of interest, but of great spiritual instruction, to refer to Genesis chapter 10, where we find the origin of those nations whose histories are so intimately and vitally interwoven with that of the people of God. Many of the nations, who were afterwards great adversaries of Israel, sprang from Ham, who was under the curse. We find many familiar names there, such as Babylon, Nineveh, Egypt, the Canaanites and the Philistines, and all these were the inveterate enemies of Israel, all belong to the family under the curse. But it is particularly with the Philistines that we have to do at this juncture in the history of Abraham, and it is a notable fact that these were always found in the land of Canaan, in a part of the country adjoining Egypt with which they had the most unhindered and unobstructed communication. The spiritual interpretation of these historical facts brings home to the exercised soul that morally, the world, through which we wend our pilgrim way to Canaan's rest, is marked by the same spirit of opposition and antagonism as Abraham encountered in his day. These Philistines therefore, spiritually interpreted, are natural men in heavenly things. And the typical importance must correspond to their place in an inspired history of things, which happened unto them for types, or ensamples, and the general history and character throw great light on truths of great moral import. We have seen in Genesis chapter 18 and 19 the significant contrast between the privilege of faith enjoyed by the truly circumcised that is one who accepts death upon all that is of nature and the flesh and the loss suffered by unbelief, even when found in a righteous person who has not accepted circumcision, who walks in practice after the flesh. Lot was providentially cared for in the faithfulness of God, but faith's privilege was not his. In Genesis chapter 20 and 21 we have another contrast. We see the believer walking in such a way that he comes under the rebuke of the world. 20. Then we see him walking so that the world has to acknowledge that God is with him in all that he does. Genesis chapter 21 verse 22. In the former chapter, the same weakness and failure betray themselves in Abraham as were evidenced in chapter 12, where he denies his true relationship with Sarah, but the denial here assumes a much more serious form. This is generally the case when unbelief is left unjudged. When faith is at a low ebb, how easy it is to succumb to importunities, and to indulge in the shameful subterfuges of unbelief. The sharp knives of Gilgal can alone deal adequately with the morbid outgrowths of the flesh in whatever form it may seek to express itself. The working of unbelief in Genesis chapter 12 was in connection with Abraham giving up the heavenly position, leaving Bethel and going down to Egypt, in chapter 20. It was after the promise that Sarah would be the mother of Isaac, with whom God's covenant would be established, and who would inherit all the promises that God had pledged himself to fulfill. The special testimony in chapter 12 was of the inheritance, in chapter 20 it was concerning the heir. 
is it not a very solemn reflection, dear reader, that the special testimony of the moment was the focal point against which all the efforts of the enemy were directed with unabated tenacity? If Abraham had been in the practical faith of the promise which had been divinely confirmed to him, he would have realized how essential it was to maintain the true relationship in which he stood to Sarah. It was the essential thing in relation to the testimony of God at that moment. As another has said, the top shoot goes first. Unbelief, weakness or fear always leads to the giving up of the choicest thing, and so Abraham fails at Jerah as long before he had failed in Egypt. These Philistines too are but Egyptians, though in Canaan, even as the world, though come into the church, is still the world. Sarah, as typifying the covenant of grace, belongs still, as always, to the man of faith, but how often has he failed to assert uncompromisingly this absolutely exclusive claim? It is a solemn warning for every true-hearted child of God, that one so privileged, one who enjoyed such nearness to God, should so grievously depart from faith, as to his public testimony. But has each one of us not to own with deep shame and sorrow of heart, as we review our own history in the light of Abraham's sad failures? That these are but faithful portrayals of our own failures by the way. Have we not known what it was to speak and walk inconsistently with the path of faith, even after having tasted the joy of heavenly things? The unfriendly eyes of the world would not always have detected in our walk and ways that we were in the dignity and blessedness of our calling and privilege. It is sad indeed to see how the thoughts of nature can come in and practically set aside the thoughts of faith. Abraham was afraid, the fear of man had been a snare to him, they will kill me, he exclaimed. But the root of this sad defection is laid bare in verse 13, where we read, God caused me to wander from my father's house. Is this Abraham's estimate of that sovereign call of the God of glory? That reached him when he was worshipping other gods. What a low and natural conception of that wondrous call from the unseen. The call, the inheritance and the privileges of a heavenly man were all lost sight of for a moment in, God caused me to wander from my father's house. Is this the thought or the confession of faith? But is Abraham alone in this? How often do we find words on our lips that do not rise above the level of natural men? In the storm, the disciples cried out in great distress, we perish. In the wilderness they said, Whence should we have so many loaves to satisfy so great a crowd? When the Lord warned them against the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, they said, It is because we have taken no bread, and again. When he told his disciples that he had meat to eat that they knew not of, they said, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Peter did seem to rise to thoughts of faith when he confessed Jesus to be, the Christ the Son of the living God, but almost immediately he displays how far removed he was in spirit from his divine master in relation to the path of suffering that lay before him, as he exclaims, This shall in no wise be unto thee. This all shows how quickly the thoughts of faith can be departed from, and when this occurs. There is sure to be the denial of the relationships in which we stand spiritually. It is good to see how God's controlling hand is over the principal actors in this scene, acting in perfect consistency with his nature and attributes, as the one who can snatch victory out of defeat. And lay signal honour upon his failing servant by saying to Abimelech, He is a prophet and will pray for thee, that thou mayest live. God always loves to honour his people. Think of how wonderfully this is brought out in Job 42, where God says, My servant Job shall pray for you, for him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly. For you have not spoken of me rightly like my servant Job. It was necessary for Abraham, however, that he should come under the rebuke of the world. 
In spite of the world's hatred to Christ and those who seek to be true to him, it expects a standard of behavior eminently greater and more elevated than its own. Even though it regards such conduct with critical and disapproving eyes. Sarah was the vessel of promise for the bringing in of Isaac, typically, Christ. And because of this the enemy was behind all the weakness and fear of Abraham and also the actions of Abimelech to defeat this purpose. How solemn is the admonition contained in all this for our souls. Depend upon it, if we seek to effect a compromise with the world, it will entail the denial of our relationship with Christ. And the moral inability to present him in testimony to those whose capricious friendship we have bought at such a price. The Galatians provide us with a very instructive illustration of what has been asserted, they were taking ground as having, fallen from grace, which involved the denial of the divine relationships. How humbling too the rebuke Abimelech administers to Sarah. She ought to have been veiled, as Abraham's wife, then Abimelech would not have seen her. Twice in the fourth chapter of the Song of Songs the veil is mentioned. Thine eyes are doves behind thy veil, as a piece of pomegranate are thy temples, behind thy veil, verses 1, and 3. All the varied beauties that mark the saints of God are for the eye of Christ alone. The moment anything is done to attract the eye of man, the true character and comeliness of the spiritual life are gone. When Rebecca saw Isaac she veiled herself, a very precious indication that she was to be for Isaac exclusively. The church ought to have been always veiled, to have kept herself exclusively for Christ, instead of displaying herself before the world that has refused and rejected her Lord.